This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We mentioned this program recently that we're planning to speak with Michael Trackman about what happened with Citizens United and the overturning of Roe v. Wade. We expect to bring Greg Pallas back to talk about what's going on down in Georgia. And we certainly hope to hear from Stephen J. Harper at Northwestern University on, about his opinion, being the Trump expert that he is, about what's going on with the January 6th hearing. So we're, we're hip deep in politics, uh, it seems, at the moment. And who better to talk politics with than one of our good friends, Jim DiEugenio? He's an author, he's a screenwriter. He is an educator, and he's an indefatigable researcher, along with host of a, of a great website. So at this point, let's just say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Jim DiEugenio. It's great to be back to Radio Parallax. <laughs> Haven't been here in a while, kind of miss you guys, okay? And, uh, you know, you have a really nice show, okay? And, and, I'm, and I'm glad to be part of it. The website is kennedysandking.com. I should also say, uh, to get another shameless plug-in, that my book is out, and it's called JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. That book is a compilation of the two screenplays I wrote for Oliver Stone's two documentaries on the JFK case, JFK Destiny Betrayed and JFK Revisited. And then it has a lot of the interviews that we did to make the film. There's a lot of the excerpts that didn't make it into the movie, but are still very, very interesting. So you're going to get a combination of an annotated screenplay that is all the footnotes and the interview excerpts that didn't make it into the film. It's about 460 pages, and I guarantee you you'll be very educated and entertained about the JFK case after you read that. When you last spoke with us, which I think was probably around last December or so, the, the JFK Revisited two-hour version was available to, to, for viewers. And, and you promised there'd be the, a four-hour version, which I gather people can also now uh, pull up and watch. Yes. The two-hour version is the one being broadcast by Showtime. Okay. The four-hour version is available on various streamers, you know, like uh, Amazon, Google Play, Okay, uh, I think it's available uh, also on uh, YouTube. For You have to pay for it on YouTube. Okay, so the four-hour version is the one I like the best. Okay, but the two-hour version is very good also. Well, I'm going to check out that four-hour version in the not-too-distant future and uh, maybe have a few words to say about it. I wanted to have you come on recently because we had Jeff Morley on a few weeks back, who I know you respect a great deal. His book, Scorpion's Dance, we thought was excellent. Um, Morley is a great researcher, but it did occur to me that uh, Jeff Morley does not speculate. If he's got some hard data, he'll tell you what it is, but he doesn't like to say, well, there's maybe this and maybe that. So I was thinking that to really talk about Watergate at its 50th anniversary, I pulled up uh, the Jim Hogan book, Secret Agenda, and was just knocked out at, at, how, at how good it is. And I thought I should probably, you know, hook up with you on this. And I realized the day before you'd posted something on this very subject on Consortium News. Right. I, I did a – it's not really a review of Scorpion's Dance, 
I decided to talk about the CIA's role in Watergate by keying it off some of the things in Morley's book. Okay, there were a couple things I didn't use from Morley's book. I got them from Secret Agenda. Right. Okay. Now, I should say this in advance before we get into this subject. All right. Jim Hogan's book, Secret Agenda, was published back in 1984. Yes. In my opinion, to this day, I don't think there's a better book about Watergate than Secret Agenda. Secret Agenda was both a milestone in the field. In other words, he went to a place that nobody had gone to yet. Okay? Yeah. But it also, what it did, it was a breakthrough, okay, in our, the way we look at the whole phenomenon of Watergate. And the thing about Secret Agenda is that if you read that book, you wonder, what were Woodward and Bernstein doing? <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, yeah, the, the, familiar, the familiar narrative that I think almost everybody has, which has been revived here at the time of the 50th anniversary, is the Woodward and Bernstein narrative of Nixon was bad, Nixon bugged some people. Thank God there was some Washington Post reporters that kind of lucked out and dug, did some digging, and they uncovered the wrongdoing, and... It was basically righted through through actions in the courts and, and through the Senate Watergate Committee, et cetera, and has a happy ending, showing that the system worked. But I think of the old Firesign Theater album, Everything You Know Is Wrong, because in this case, <laughs> almost everything we know about this, per that narrative, is wrong. Yes. Yeah, and see, and, and it's a shame, it really is, that it took 10 years to get somebody to get out there in the open and really have some kind of an impact on what the official story was, okay? Now, one of the things that was bandied about is that somehow Nixon was in on the bugging, you know, and the burglary of the DNC, the Democratic National right. Committee. Right, right. All right. Well, that's not really true. There's there's never been any evidence that I have seen, at least, that would implicate, you know, Nixon in that particular crime. Well, Jim, we have we have his words on the White House taping system, and when it comes down that there's been this burglary and and these men have been arrested, he's clearly surprised by what the hell's going on here. Yes, that's that's true. That's true. So this is something that kind of blindsided him, okay? Um, now, that's not to say that Nixon did not do some pretty bad things, okay, concerning this, but that, what I'm saying, and I think what you're saying, is this was not one of them. Right. Yet, this is, the, this is the one that ends up detonating his presidency, okay? It was really this whole bugging and burglary at the DNC that took front and center stage through the whole two years of Watergate. We, we need to put it in perspective. You and I were speaking preparatory to having this, this conversation and, and talking about the fact that Nixon did okay all sorts of illegal activities. At one point, they were talking about firebombing the Brookings Institute, and, and the White House people are like, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, we could do that. It's just that, that they were talking about doing it. Fortunately, they did not. But it, it is true that in the case of the actual Watergate burglary, 
Nixon clearly did not order that. Right. I know there's, there's never been any evidence to, to go ahead and implicate him in that. All right. Now, related to that, this directly relates to did Woodward and Bernstein, okay, uncover the story behind the burglary? Well, there's a, a lot of different views of this, okay? I actually don't think that they actually did because I believe, and some other people also believe, that A, um, Deep Throat was a composite character. He was not exclusively Mark Felt, okay? And I also believe that there was much more to the break-in and the burglary than what Woodward Bernstein and the Irvin Committee. Should we define what the Irvin Committee was? Sure. Senator Sam Irvin was a senior senator from North Carolina, okay? And they put together a special committee. Um, in other words, it was not a standing committee. It was a special committee on Watergate, all right? The Irvin Committee was controlled by the Democrats because they had a majority in Congress at that time. Irvin was the chairman. Sam Dash was the chief counsel, all right? You know, and they... Let's put it this way. The Democrats, on the whole, did not care a lot for Dick Nixon. Okay? <laughs> well, so that, and, and that's the, yeah. an understatement. Yeah, in the wake of the 72 right. election where they lost every state but Massachusetts and D.C., you could imagine right, they were a little right. irked at what had been used against them. So they, I don't think it's unfair to say this, you know, they more or less targeted the White House, okay, you know, uh, and they were kind of unremitting on this, all right? And there was one guy, though, on that committee who was very puzzled by some odd things, which we'll get to later, that was part of this whole Watergate scandal, and that was Howard Baker, the senior senator from Tennessee, yeah. all right? And his chief counsel, the minority counsel, was Fred Thompson, who actually went on to become a senator and an actor himself, yes. okay? All right, and they decided to set up a subcommittee inside the Watergate Committee, and they were going to explore some of the rather odd things that they thought were happening, okay? Um, one of them was, why did the CIA prepare a psychological profile on Daniel Ellsberg. <laughs> if you remember, yes. one of the things that the plumbers, this was the group of people that were meant to plug leaks for the White House, okay? One of the things that they wanted to do was get some dirt on Daniel Ellsberg, all right, who was the employee um, at the Rand Corporation, who had access to the Pentagon Papers, all right? And this was a secret study made by Robert McNamara showing what really had happened in Vietnam. And it wasn't what the newspapers said it was or the president said it was. And so he started leaking those to various newspapers throughout the country, including the New York Times and the Washington Post. And at first, Nixon did not make a big deal about this. But Henry Kissinger who knew how to press Nixon's buttons, started <laughs> haranguing him 
about how weak he looked with Ellsberg, you know, taking all these Pentagon papers. Is, and, and the thing about the Pentagon papers that was so bizarre is that the Pentagon papers stopped at 1969. Right. It shouldn't have reflected badly on Nixon. It had next to nothing to do with Nixon, okay? It was all Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson. I want to remind our listeners that you did come on this show a couple years ago when that Tom Hanks movie was trying to portray the Washington Post as so heroic in the Daniel Ellsberg saga when they were skipping a lot about what the New York Times and other people had done. I mean, really, making a movie about the Washington Post and the Pentagon Papers would be making like like making a movie about Watergate to the New York Times, okay? <laughs> it, it was it was just a, simply a silly kind of thing to do. But anyway, the way this relates is that one of the crazy ideas that the plumbers had was to raid the office of Doctor Fielding, who was a psychiatrist for Daniel Ellsberg. All right, right, and so. But what's so odd, and this is one of the things that Baker took exception to, Howard Hunt was supposed to be retired from the CIA. He then went to the Mullen Company, and he then went to the White House, okay, and worked for Charles Colson. To stop right then and there, if you're reading what your essay about this, or you're reading Jim Hogan, or you're reading Jeff Morley, you're going to bump up against the fact that it seems pretty clear that E. Howard Hunt and James McCord may have ostensibly been working for the White House, but they clearly owed an allegiance and, more, and a more superior allegiance to that of the Central Intelligence Agency. Yes, and I was just going to get to that. Because Hunt, when he was doing these crazy things for the White House, he would always ask for help from the CIA. You know, whether it be a, you know, a voice uh, disguise thing, okay, whether whether it be a hairpiece, whether it be false identities, okay? In this case, it was a psychological profile of Daniel Ellsberg, okay? And, and also, the pictures that they took casing the outside of Fielding's office, mm-hmm. those pictures were developed by the CIA, and Richard Helms saw them. So this is one of the things that really puzzled Baker, Hunt is supposed to be retired from the CIA, working for the White House, but yet the CIA is giving him all this aid for nothing. Or were they actually getting something very valuable they were interested in from the operation? Now, that is a very good question for you to ask. Okay, that is a very good, because that's the one that Howard Baker was being puzzled by. Mm -hmm. Okay, in other words, was this... Richard Helms' way of having an agent in the White House. That's the question that Baker was trying to answer. Is that why he was doing all this? Helms, who was the CIA director until Nixon fired him, which I think was in 1973, okay, Helms, when he testified before the Watergate Committee, he flew back from Iran. He was the ambassador to Iran. Jeff Morley in his book begins his book by Helm saying, we had nothing to do with
it's Watergate. And I've been trying to say this from the very beginning, you know, from the beginning of this scandal till today. The CIA had nothing to do with Watergate. <laughs> that wasn't really true, Dick. No, okay? no, it certainly wasn't. <laughs> For instance, Eugenio Martinez, who was one of the burglars that Howard Hunt recruited down there in Miami, okay, was reporting to a CIA case officer all through this time that he was working with Hunt all the way to the break-in. He was actively on the payroll of the CIA, unlike McCord and Hunt. He was actually being paid <laughs> by the CIA monthly, okay? So Baker, of course, thought, well, wait a minute. If he was reporting to a CIA case officer, maybe he told the CIA case officer about what was happening. And that was a way for the CIA to know in advance what was going to happen at the DNC. So Baker and Thompson asked for an interview with Martinez's case officer. Do you know what the CIA said? Tell us. He was on safari in Africa. All right, we're talking about Watergate and some other interesting stuff with educator and author Jim DiEugenio. Since we're talking about Eugenio Martinez, I just have to throw in one of the most oddball things out of the whole Watergate saga. When they arrest these five men in the building, and they're wearing, like, uh, rubber gloves, and I guess they have photographic equipment set up on a desk. When they arrest these men, Eugenio Martinez tries to swallow a key that's in his possession. I wish you I wish you were kidding about that, but no, you're not. No. <laughs> I think they stop him at gunpoint, and the FBI then proceeds to go through the offices of the DNC, figuring out which desk this belongs to. And it turns out it belongs to a woman named Maxie Wells, who is who is a very a fascinating story in itself, because the, it, it seems very clearly that at least one of the subplots of what those boys were doing in the, in the, in the Watergate was they wanted to get into Maxie Wells' desk. Now, here's the question. When, you, when Maxie Wells testified, she said, and she swore to this, there are only two copies of that key. One of them was around my neck. The other one was around the neck of my assistant. Okay? So the question becomes, how the hell... Did Martinez get a copy of that key? You know, and this is something that nobody's ever really been able to answer. And as Jeff Morley says in his book, Martinez would not answer any questions about this. Mm -hmm. And a lot of his interview with the with the uh, Watergate prosecution is still classified on this point. How the hell did he get a copy? There's there's one way I can imagine. Okay, there's that they had an inside guy at the DNC. That would be one way, all right? Or the other way, as somebody suggested, one of the earlier break-ins, because what nobody, very few people know, that night that they got caught wasn't the first break-in. Right. Okay? Right, right. They were going back in for, for reasons that we can speculate on, I think, in a moment. They, they had been there twice before. The first time they didn't get in. The second time they did get in. Okay. All right. So what what could have happened is that somebody like McCord could have made a key because he was the technical guy. Okay. He was the chief of security at the CIA. All right. So that's one way. But the question then becomes, which I'm sure you're going to ask me, 
Why Maxie Wells? Why Maxie Wells? Let's talk about the sex talk. Because apparently a man named Alfred Baldwin, who didn't wound up not getting arrested, had a job of monitoring what they were supposedly picking up on microphones across right. the street. He was in the Howard Johnson's hotel. He was talking – he was making transcripts of a lot of sex right. talk. And there, there's two schools of thought on this is that, one, a lot of prominent Democrats were having sexual liaisons working through these, uh, the offices of Spencer Oliver and Maxie Wells, or that the bug might have been somewhere else. Or God knows, maybe both. But, but the fact of the matter is there's something going on of a sexual nature that the Democrats apparently were very interested in not taking a look at. Spencer Oliver was actually on vacation. Okay, He was going around to other uh, places in the United States at that time. And by the way, I should add, the other target, O'Brien, Larry O'Brien, he wasn't there either. He was in Florida, yeah. He was in Florida, yeah. <laughs> So this is really one so of the stupidest the- things about the whole thing. Is that is that the two places that apparently McCord wanted to put bugs in, neither one of these guys are there. And they went ahead anyway. <laughs> I want to speculate on something else. Uh, it's, well, several things I want to speculate on. The one I want to go to next is the fact that these are these are. These are serious guys. These Bay of Pigs guys, the five Cubans that were, the four Cubans and McCord that were caught in the building, Howard Hunt across the street, G. Gordon Liddy was an FBI agent. Somehow they managed to go into a building, tape the door open, which secretaries did to keep it open after hours. But when the security guard comes by and removes the tape, they put the tape back. Frank Wills was the security guard. Yeah. He's making a walk through the area. He sees the tape on the door. And he removes the tape. <laughs> if, if somebody is Any- taking the tape off, that means that somebody has been there and he's waiting as a guard to see if, if, if somebody else, if this is just a washing lady or a janitorial service or a secretary, or if it's more than that. If you retape the door, then obviously it's not a secretarial service. It's not a janitorial service. It's something more. So now Jim Hogan, in his secret, his book Secret Agenda, what he did that was almost un, I, actually I think it was unprecedented at that time. He did a almost what do I want to say a minute by minute or close to that a minute by minute breakdown of what happened that night because that's not in the urban report the urban report only spends two or three pages on the break-in itself but jim hogan did a finely grained analysis of what the heck happened that night and he came to the conclusion that there were two very odd things that he couldn't explain why did mccord retaped the door and why did McCord tape so many doors anywhere between six and eight doors okay what what why did he do that the other thing is why did none of McCord's <laughs> bugs work uh-huh well and we also need to jump forward that that when it was originally called a burglary it became a bugging three months later when the Democrats said hey hey look at this we found a microphone in our phone Except that it was a faulty microphone 
and couldn't possibly have worked. So that could not have been the microphone they were using to eavesdrop. Right. So th- this is something that really, uh, you know, Jim Hogan very rightfully made a big deal about in his book because nobody else had made a big deal about it. All right. And then you get into the whole thing about McCord and Hunt. Because not only, not only did that happen, but here you have two guys who were in the CIA for a combination of almost 40 years together. All right? You add in their both experience together, and it's about 38, 39 years. Okay? Anybody who has done the kind of work that these guys would do would know that if you're going to put up these guys in a hotel, you collect <laughs> all the IDs, okay, right. All, right. all their wallets, right. okay, all the cash they have on hand, you put it in a gym bag, and you take it to a locker at a, rail, at a railway station or something, and you, and you right. have only one right. key. Okay, so that nobody will ever know who these guys. Well, that's if you can believe it. <laughs> that's not what happened. They left a notebook, a notebook with <laughs> W House right. and the an actual phone number of the White House, which immediately connected the burglars right. to, to Howard Hunt and the White House. Exactly, immediately to the immediately. White House. Exactly. Right, and and also it was sequentially numbered hundred dollar bills. You know. So you could tr- you could trace the money. Right. To disappoint our listeners, we're not going to solve what happened in Watergate in, in this conversation because clearly there are some bizarre mysteries that remain. But it does seem evident that, right. that Helms and the CIA was spying on Nixon. Nixon was doing dirty tricks against the Democrats. But each guy, as Morley points out, each side is something on the other guy. And this brings us to what Morley talked about, and I think you've talked about many times in the past, is that Nixon resigned because it was proven that he ordered a cover-up in the June 23rd tape that finally finally was released. In that tape, was he's giving instructions to Haldeman to go talk to the CIA about the fact that we got to cover this thing up because it'll trace back to the whole Bay of Pigs thing. And it seems clear, according, well, it seems clear to Jeff Morley, I imagine you and me both, that that evidently points to the JFK assassination. This is one of the main points of Scorpion's Dance, that Helms and Nixon were kind of playing a game of chicken, and Nixon wanted to get certain things out of the CIA, okay, by telling Helms that, you know, we've covered up a lot of stuff, you know, with you and Hunt. Jeff says the reason that he wanted to get things on the Bay of Pigs, perhaps code name for the JFK assassination, and things like the, the murder of the Diem brothers, etc., was that he thought he was going to be running against Ted Kennedy in, his, in 1972. Mm-hmm. All right? And this is the reason that he wanted this stuff. But Helms gave him very, very little. And this, of course, is what led to his firing. And if you remember, one of the notes that McCord wrote to his handler in the White House, Jack Caulfield, he literally said, look, if Helms is fired 
and they and these guys try and lay Watergate at the foot of the CIA, every tree in the forest will fall. It will be a scorched desert. Tell them if that's what they're trying for, they're right at the precipice of it. Yeah. Now, could you could you get a more threatening letter than that? Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We've got plenty more. Stick around. <laughs> 